0: This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' 1st nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, the Orleans Parish School Board unanimously selected the next superintendent at a special board meeting Wednesday afternoon. And the actor Brad Pitt's Make It Right Foundation and its subsidiary are facing a list of grievances from residents, including abandonment and failure to pay taxes. Those stories, insight and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, education reporter, Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. And government and cultural economy reporter, Michael Isaac Stein. Hi, Michael. Good morning. So, Marta, first up with you, the superintendent has been selected. The Orleans School Board completed its search, and they have replaced outgoing superintendent Henderson Lewis, Jr. Tell us about the new pick.
1: Yeah, so they unanimously voted yesterday and decided on um, Dr. Avis Wright, who is currently... Uh, She is currently the superintendent of Selma City Schools in um, Alabama, where she's been since, I believe it's 2015.
0: Tell us about the competition.
1: Yep, so um, Williams was a finalist along with um, Marshall Tuck, who runs what I would basically think is easiest to describe as a very similar organization to New Schools for New Orleans out of Los Angeles. And then also Andre Wright, who is a, was a previous chief academic officer in Aurora, Colorado schools, and had recently left to become a consultant with a managing group that was uh, taking over schools for some Colorado school districts.
0: Okay. And some folks were expressing a little uh, disappointment that there were no local finalists.
1: Yeah, that was definitely, um, I think the, the loudest sentiment that we heard even kind of regarding any of these three candidates was that there was a lack of local representation um, even in the, the list of, when it was da- narrowed down to seven names, there's only one person who is from the New Orleans area. And people were, you know, kind of dismayed at that and then further upset when there was no local representation on the final list.
0: The current superintendent, Henderson Lewis, how long has he, remind me, his tenure?
1: Yeah, he has been here since 2015, which is actually pretty long um, for a superintendent.
0: And was he local?
1: Uh, sort of. Yes and no. Um, he lived in St. Bernard Parish, uh, had worked in, was a school board member in St. Bernard Parish. He had worked in some New Orleans schools. And when he came here, he had was had been the president or the superintendent of the East Feliciana School District. So okay. fairly local compared to, you know, Miss Williams coming in from Alabama or someone coming in from LA or
0: Miami. Right, right. So far, it's been it's only been a less than a day as we are speaking right now. Um, so far, what's the besides the pushback on a, on, you know, the grumpiness around having no local candidates for finalists? Uh, any other insight yet on Twitter about the, the feedback?
1: Well, I think first, of, we definitely should say that um, they selected her and, and that they have yet to negotiate a contract. So it's not certainly it's not finalized yet. Other than that, most of what I'm hearing is I think people are excited that this is the first um, permanent female superintendent that has ever been placed in New Orleans, and certainly first black female superintendent. Um, there have been a couple other who have served as interims, but no, never have they been selected as the permanent leader. So I think there's some excitement around that for sure. Williams, you know, has kind of a non-traditional background. She, during her interview on Tuesday, said when she was going through school, like no one ever told her that college wasn't. She- an option for her and so she wanted she ended up in the army before she um you know made her way through the ranks and then came back to education and education leadership um so she was pretty grounded in that she you know wants to ensure that all students know college is an option for them and that she really wants to focus on uh, specifically mental health and trauma in the district and you know also early literacy so those are some of the kind of the early things that we're seeing her want to have a focus on
0: I also noticed in your story that she is set to interview for a similar position in, I think it was Alabama. I don't remember.
1: Yes, she is also a finalist in the search for superintendent in Montgomery. That interview is scheduled for April 7th. I wasn't able to reach her yesterday, so I don't know if she's still pursuing that, but you know, I I think in a business negotiation, uh, she's probably not gonna reveal that answer until she has a contract. So
0: Right, that piqued my interest. I thought, hmm might be jumping the gun just a tiny bit if they don't have it signed on the dotted line yet with her. But I suppose they had to announce that this she was their choice and they're pursuing or they're they're going into negotiations.
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly we're happy that they decided to uh, name the person they were voting on this time unlike like uh, two rounds ago when they didn't name names, although they did. After we wrote about it, they reversed that and actually named that um, pared down list of candidates.
0: But as you said, it's not a signed deal yet. So it's possible that this doesn't happen.
1: Yep, it's possible. I've seen it before. Um, yeah, it, it can happen. Great.
0: <laughs> right. Okay.
1: So we'll have to wait and see. I think their goal is to announce and finalize that contract by early next week. So hopefully we'll know within the next week. Okay.
0: And tell us about COVID
1: yeah covid numbers are extremely low and i would put a giant asterisk behind that or sorry let me rephrase myself the covid numbers reported are extremely low which (laughs) i would put a giant asterisk behind because it really appears that some schools have stopped reporting um the district in its most recent release on monday had some wording along the lines of, let me find this exact quote here. Okay, while schools are required to continue to report cases to the state, many schools are gradually relieving themselves of the extra burden of reporting to the district. And I
0: love that that language. They're gradually relieving themselves of the I burden. I know,
1: I mean, just, you know, honestly, just tell us which schools are reporting. You have all zeros in there, just put NAs in there. That's fine, I think. Um, the more appropriate thing to do is to give people a realistic picture of what data you're actually reporting and not, you know, just hide. You put that quote in a press release somewhere. Not everyone is necessarily going to see that. So, right. Can, you,
2: can I ask, I mean, are they still going to put out like, here's all the cases in all schools this week, are they still going to put the data out, you know, with that kind of title on it, even though they know some schools aren't reporting. So what they, they have
1: currently been doing that is they, they have been saying, you know, here are the cases for the week. And then, you know, one week we were like, look, Kip has zero cases and zero quarantines. And then it turned out that they had had an error submitting their data, but it still had shown zeros. So I think there's certainly some ways they could have improved that system um, using NAs or, you know, not reported or um, something like that. Um, so that we knew if people are having trouble reporting if they were actually reporting zeros and what the district is also doing is going forward is they're no longer going to run their own tracker their tracker is just going to reflect state data or state department of health data and what i've been interested in about that is they are maintaining that it will show school level breakdowns but when i go to the department of health the only thing i can see is a parish level breakdown Hmm. That doesn't break down by public or private schools either. Um, It says number of schools, but doesn't tell you which schools. So um, the district has said that there's some special like superintendent level report that does include which cases are at schools. So I guess that's the data that they'll be using, but really hoping that they maintain that school level um, part because I think that's really important here. For sure.
0: Right. Okay. Thanks, Marta. Thank you. Michael, I'm going to borrow the phrase, gradually relieving themselves of the burden, to introduce the next story. That's my mantra from now on. I'm going to gradually relieve myself from the burden of cleaning my house. Um, Brad Pitt's Make It Right Foundation, which began as a nationally lauded post-Katrina affordable housing program in the Lower Ninth Ward, has had some problems of late, including persistent reports of faulty construction, which have led to several lawsuits, including an ongoing class action. Now it turns out they owe a significant amount of back property taxes. So I suppose they've gradually relieved themselves of the burden of paying taxes. So tell us about Make It Right's past in New Orleans.
2: Yeah, so, so most people are at least somewhat familiar with Make It Right. But just as a quick refresher, um, you know, it, it, this was kind of a, a post-Hurricane Katrina um, uh, invention. It kind of started when Brad Pitt uh, visited the city in 2006 or 2007 and, and saw how slowly the Lower Ninth Ward was being built. The Lower Ninth Ward was, was particularly devastated during the storm. He, uh, with you know, in partnership with the foundation, promised to build 150 low-cost homes to try and repopulate this area that, again, had been you know almost completely devastated by the storm. And the idea was that they were going to use you know these really diverse, unique, interesting designs from you know all these world-renowned architects. And you know there was a big emphasis on using you know sustainable materials. The word green uh, was tossed around a lot when talking about these homes. Um, and like you said, for years it was kind of lauded as this kind of uh, this kind of post Katrina you know silver lining. This this you know good thing that came came after the storm. Um, the New York Times wrote an article in 2009 with the headline, um, Brad Pitt's Gifts to New Orleans. So, you know, it was seen very, very positively for a long time. Things kind of began to change in, you know, 2013, 14, 15. A lot of the houses that, that uh, make it right uh, built and sold to residents started having all of these issues around leaking and mold. And, and you know, some, some of these, you know, some of the wood just simply rotting away and disappearing Um, You know, there were reports of gas leaks. Um, And a lot of them were, were, you know, a lot of these issues were associated with these interesting architectural designs that are not typical for new orleans um that some argued you know couldn't stand up to to you know the intense weather the subtropical weather we have down here you know one famous example of this is they built many houses with flat roofs which you know if you know the amount of rainfall you get here um leads to problems pretty quickly so that you know was one classic you know what some people say was a blind spot um for the foundation um and and so you know since those problems you know kind of have come out um, things have kind of degraded pretty fast um, in 2018 some residents launched a class action lawsuit against the foundation um, the foundation has in turn uh, sued its former executive director as well as its local architect of record so it's kind of this big tangle of lawsuits with a lot of people pointing fingers at a lot of other people but with this very broad acknowledgement that something went very wrong with the construction of these homes Um, So now you have, you know, a hundred, a little over a hundred people that still live in these homes that, you know, are dealing with these kind of persistent issues with mold and structural damage. But meanwhile, Make It Right has kind of started to disappear in a lot of ways. They've become harder to reach, um, you know, cleared out their offices. So, you know, at this point, a lot of these residents who, you know, are, are having to deal with this on their own. I mean, one other thing that I want to make clear about Make It Right before we jump into this is that. You know, a lot of people have the impression that these homes were given to residents. Um, that's not the case. Um, they were sold to residents. Many of them still are paying off mortgages. Um, you know, they were low cost. I mean, a lot of them were sold around $150,000 um, or so. But, but still, these weren't free, and a lot of people are now financially tied to these properties. They can't just leave because they have an ongoing mortgage. You know, any kind of Built-up wealth they have is probably, you know, stuck in their property. So again, um, it's a lot of people who are now um, trying to navigate that.
0: Can you go back for a minute to, um, and it might be construction, home construction one hundred and one, or residential permitting one hundred and one for some people. But I don't understand the process. I would imagine that in order to build a brand new house from scratch, you need to to file. A request a permit, and then that permit has architectural review, structural reviews, engineering, all of that. And so the question, I suppose, is is how did things like flat roofs that, that were clearly not, that were unusual, A, and B, not going to te- stand the test of time in this weather, how did that kind of structure get approved?
2: Yeah, I think that's a major question that a lot of residents have. You know, how did these kind of get built in these shoddy fashions in the first place? Um, You know, why wasn't the city, you know, more on top of this, you know, pointing out, hey, this isn't going to work. I think the first thing I'll say, the most important thing I'll say is that we don't really know for sure. There are a a bunch of different explanations. You know, some people talk about how in the post-Katrina landscape, you know, the city was not functioning at 100 percent, that things were falling through the cracks some people talk about how any kind of new construction post-Katrina was very welcomed, you know, and and, and maybe, you know, things got skipped over. You know, we've had rampant allegations and, and convictions uh, of corruption in, in the Department of Safety and Permits. Um, I mean, even as recently as, as, as last year, there was a conviction. And, you know, right now we're talking about the post-Katrina years when, you know, that mayor at the time, Mayor Negan, ended up in jail over, you know, a construction um, uh, corruption scheme. So, right. you know, things like this did happen, you know, uh, um, and, and so I, I don't think that we can pinpoint exactly why this happened. Um, but I don't think given what we, given what happened after Katrina, given, you know, what we know now about, you know, things, you know, th- that happened, uh, it's not necessarily that surprising that, that some of these, um, plans snuck through.
0: Right. Okay.
1: I think there's also like theoretical, these plans can be workable in theory, right? And then was it installation of products were certain products not available? Are these products that are not typically, like Michael said, wind tested or heat tested? Like when I'm thinking about a flat metal roof, I'm thinking about the car sealant on my window that has just like totally rotted out from the heat. And like, was that what happened to the, you know, rubber washer screws that they would have used or something like that. Right, exactly
2: yeah I, I worked i worked on a construction crew when i was in high school and i you know there was a lot of times where we'd have the blueprint and then yeah like different supplies would show up than what we needed and the foreman would just start doing stuff differently you know and and kind of making it work and i, I you know i'm not saying that's how it happens everywhere but but like is saying just because one plan was approved in that office doesn't mean that that's exactly what got built again with some of these materials again like marta's saying they're you know famously they used this kind of synthetic wood that was supposed to be rot resistant that rotted actually quite quickly um it turned out and and you know again like marta said it you know i'm curious whether this synthetic wood was ever tested in a climate like here with the humidity we have and the heat so you know again a lot of things can happen um whether it was actual corruption, whether these were honest mistakes, you know, we really don't know those details.
0: And now we've got lots of finger pointing and, and lawsuits flying back and forth. So so the original plan was to build 150 homes. How, how many did they build?
2: Uh, they ultimately built 109. Um, and, and I think, you know, rough estimate, there's about 105 or 106 still standing.
0: Okay, and what about the remaining lots? Are they empty?
2: yeah so like i said earlier you know make it right they, they bought a lot of these properties in the lower ninth Ward, um then built homes on them and then sold them to, to residents so so those homes are not in are no longer the property of make it right um however the foundation still does own well a subsidiary of the foundation still does own 33 lots um and, and blighted properties in the neighborhood we don't know exactly why, but but you know, like we were talking about earlier, the original intention was to build 150 homes. Um, they only ended up building 109. So we can assume that some of these lots were, were intended to to have homes built on them. But, and let me um,
0: let me interrupt real quick. Yeah. Those are the the subsidiary of the nonprofit is a for profit subsidiary. That's correct. Okay, that's interesting too. Keep going.
2: And yeah, so, so for the most part, you know, these 33 properties are, are all are mostly vacant lots. Um, they also include a, a, a kind of abandoned blighted gas station on North Claiborne. Um, if you're in the area you're you're familiar with it, it it's right before the bridge it It, it also includes um, the the foundation's old construction office, which is now um, kind of shut down and rotting it includes a playground that was built that neighbors are now maintaining. and it also includes one make it right home. so one home that was built by make it right that they intended to sell, but it appears, either never were able to, or had to purchase back for some reason, and, and that home is now sitting, uh, no, no one owns it, no one appears to, to live there officially, at least. So, you know, th- those are the 33 homes, mostly vacant lots and, and a few blighted buildings. And, and you know, like you said, it, it appears that the foundation has stopped paying property taxes on these. You know, some ha- you know, haven't paid property tax since as, as far back as 2017, um, but none of them none of these properties paid their property taxes in 2021 and it's possible that none of them are paying their their 2022 taxes either those taxes are actually due today um, but the city's online records um, look to be um, it it looks like they're not being updated so we can't know for sure that they haven't paid their 2022 taxes yet but it's a strong possibility and if that's the case then all these properties would be two years delinquent in, in 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 um um, paying your taxes the, the city has put one of those properties to its tax sale um, for failure to pay those taxes so so you know it, it the foundation could be dispossessed of at least one property off the bat it, you know, with these properties, the other issue besides taxes is, is maintenance. Um, you know, the, the, the Times-Picayune wrote a story about a year ago about how the foundation was no longer paying the guy who was mowing the grass, just this local um, contractor. And, and you can see it now when you drive around, you know, you can see that the grass is growing really tall, the trash is accumulating, problems associated with the, with the lots are growing and, and clearly no one is maintaining them. Um, in fact, one uh, uh, property was recently seized um, and sold by the city in a sheriff's sale earlier this month um, for, for sanitation problems and, and rat harborage. Um, so, again, you know, you, you see these issues around taxes and maintenance kind of growing. And, and now we're starting to see the city kind of step in and, and, and um, take some action to, to take some of these properties away. Although... Anyone who's ever dealt with blight near their house um, or abandoned property or or unmaintained uh, lots—that's um, not necessarily a quick process. You know, Louisiana has pretty strong property laws, um, and in, it can take years and years before a property you know is actually taken from um, you know uh, the owner for for either outstanding code violations or unpaid taxes. It's a very very long process.
0: I would I would guess that the entire project was meant to be. Uh, developed, sold back for laudable and admirable reasons. And then the entire organization was supposed to develop or establish an HOA, which would then do the maintenance of the the lots, the mowing and the park and all that. And and it all just fell apart like the like the structures themselves. You know, the, I'm sure the HOA probably never even was established if they're
2: if yeah i mean so they, they had you know a customer service line for residents for a long time and, and from what it sounds like to me is that for for a while they, they were fairly responsive I, I think things you know really became to ch- began to change in 2015 when all these problems all these problems started to get more serious um you know the last homes they built it appears we're all in 2015. So, you know, one scenario that might have happened is that they were planning to kind of continue this, to finish the 150 homes, you know, to set up kind of a permanent maintenance um, team or or something like that. But then they found themselves, you know, having to do all these renovations to the homes, all these fixes that that, you know, may have sucked up um, more of their their time and resources than they had originally intended. And that's kind of when things started to unravel. But yeah, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, make it right, you know, it's not really supposed to own any of these properties. That's not really the idea. Um, you know, they're not supposed to be holding on to this massive swath of land. Um and, and I'll say that driving around that neighborhood it, it- it's odd for a couple of reasons. One is that it, it looks different from anywhere else here in, in New Orleans. And, and second, there's a lot of vacant land in between all these make it right homes. So all of these lots, all of these overgrown and bladed lots are in the same roughly five by five square block area that the make it right homes are in. So it kind of has this direct effect on the neighborhood where, you know, not only are their homes falling apart, but a lot of them are living next to these lots that aren't being maintained. And, and, you know, I, you know, it's not at the you know, title residents. Let's be let's be clear. This is not the top issue for them. You know, most people are way more worried about toxic mold, whether their AC will work by the summer, um, you know, wh- whether their porch is going to fall out from underneath them. So, so you know, I'm not trying to make this a bigger issue than it is, but it's just another, you know, it's another layer of, of what they feel is neglect um, and, on top of all the other issues they're having. You know, and, and you know, when you live next to a lot. That had that's just allowed to overgrow for, for over a year, you know, you do start to have problems with rats. Right. Um, you know, if you go to, uh, you know, one resident was telling me about how they left all these trash cans on their property that filled up with water and became these kind of just mosquitoes, um, mm. you know, breeding grounds. You know, uh, uh, another person was telling me about, you know, their neighbor who went to mow one of these lots and, and you know, ran into a snake and now long, no longer will go out there. Um, so, you know, there, there are problems that, that you know, occur here. I, I even heard a complaint um, about, you know, people going there to, to do these big, big bonfires because it's, you know, it's vacant land that no one, um, but, you know, neighbors living next door watching embers flying off towards trees, towards their own homes, you know, get nervous about it. So there's problems associated with vacant land. And again, all of the vacant and blighted land that make it, uh, right, still owns are just all adjacent to, to these residents who live in these make it right homes.
0: It's such a shame.
2: Yeah. And, and you know, uh, there were a few lots that that looked mowed um, when I went around to visit them and I was a little confused by it because why would they be mowing some and not others? Um, but, it, but it turns out that that the ones that are mowed, it's just neighbors who have taken it upon themselves to, to kind of start doing it who feel like it would be unsafe to do otherwise. So, you know, it's, it's also adding time and labor, you know, to these people's plates. Um, So, you know, it it definitely presents an issue. You know, and the other thing is, people generally want neighbors. People don't really want to live next to to vacant, blighted properties, um, which can cause safety hazards and and danger. So, you know, again, um, it's not the, the, the biggest issue these residents are facing, but it's definitely on the list. And then a lot of them had real, real frustration about it.
0: Right, and it all started with good intentions. Yeah. Well, thanks for checking in on it and the story. It's great. Thanks,
2: Carolyn.
0: All right. Thanks, you guys. Talk to you Bye. later. <laughs> Bye. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guest this week, education reporter Marta Jusin and government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Charles Maldonado, editor at The Lens. Our mission is to educate, engage, and empower readers with information and analysis necessary for them to advocate for a more transparent and just governance that is accountable to the public. That means you can count on us for truth, fairness, and accuracy. But in order to do this work, we need to count on you. Please make a tax-deductible contribution to support our work at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thanks for your support.